Good evening and welcome to our evening service. Good to have you here this evening and good to have those joining us on Zoom as well tonight. Good to be able to worship the Lord together. We welcome this evening, as we did this morning, uh, Pastor Jesse Bartz from Ennerdale Baptist Church in uh, York. Uh, that is uh, part of Toronto. And uh, as I said this morning, it's good that the uh, church family there has uh, given him the time just to come and join us here and, and to help us out. And we thank you for that and our greetings to the church when you go back, uh, Jesse. Going to ask Pastor Jesse to come now and read the scripture and lead us in prayer. Well, our passage this evening, brothers and sisters, is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, and this is what Holy Scripture says. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he, would tr he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not returned to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the, light, seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt." And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the, young men, of the wise men, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And Ramah, was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. Let's look to the Lord in prayer at this time. 
Lord, as we come together this evening, we are thankful for your grace and goodness to us. We recognize that apart from your grace toward us, if we were to receive what we deserve, that we would be facing your justice, your judgment. We would even now be facing your wrath in hell. And how we thank you that in your love, you have sent your son to live and to die for us. We thank you for opening our hearts to the truth of the gospel. Lord, we rejoice in his righteousness, not our own. We thank you that he has perfectly fulfilled the law which we could never fulfill, and that because of his righteousness, as we trust in him, we are saved, covered with that righteousness. Tonight we pray that you would help us as we worship and help us as we consider the truth of your word. We do live in a world of both joy and sorrow. We live in a world that has light and darkness. And Father, we as Christians with a biblical worldview should never turn a blind eye to either joy or to sorrow to recognize the fallenness and brokenness of this world, but also to look at this darkness and sorrow with hope because Jesus has come and lived and died. There is hope for us. And so I pray that you would encourage our hearts tonight. And for those who may uh, feel more sorrow and sadness and weariness in this season than joy and merriment, May you open our eyes to ultimate realities, and may you encourage us and bring comfort to our hearts this evening. We commit ourselves to you in this hour and pray that you would be honored for Jesus' sake. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you again, and thank you for your very warm reception once again. Uh, You've been so kind to me, so encouraging, and I'm I'm grateful. Every time I have opportunity to come up here, I'm very grateful. Uh, you have been very encouraging, and, I, and, and I'm thankful for it. Well, as we sang that hymn, I love that hymn for more than one reason. There's a beautiful uh, intertwining of dark realities and defiant hope. You see this hymn set in a minor key, and it does not close its eyes to difficult realities. Bondage, lonely exile, tyranny, depths of hell, darkness, shades of night. All of these are reality that it looks squarely in the face. And yet, at the end of each verse, this defiant note of hope grounded in the gospel, grounded in Christ and His incarnation and second coming that we look forward to. Verse 4, Yes, things are dark. Yes, this is a valley of tears. But there is cause for rejoice. Emmanuel will come. We sing this at this time of the year, not only remembering that Emmanuel has come, but that Emmanuel will come. The choice of the passage for this evening's message, I want us to focus particularly on the final three verses that we read earlier. And I know, uh, you Christmas purists and Bible readers out there, that these events don't happen strictly 
at the specific time of Christ's birth. The scene, as Rael and I were speaking about earlier, of this chapter is not actually before the manger. It's actually a house. And Jesus is no longer a baby, but a young child. Nonetheless, we typically associate the story of the wise men and their trip to pay homage to Jesus with the Christmas time. And in this story, particularly those last verses, we see a very horrible, chilling, and sad scene. Herod reaches out the hand of his power and kills all of the children that are in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years of age and under. And that word children there specifically refers to male children. And we know that what Herod was doing here was he was trying to stamp out any sort of perceived threat to his reign. Of course, he will die. His reign will not continue forever. But the one whose life he attempted to stamp out is the one whose reign will continue forever. And yet, this scene associated with Christmas is very truly a scene of sorrow. You can't look at this scene and close your eyes to the sorrow and the darkness of this moment. I've talked to a lot of people over the last few weeks who seem to be feeling in the midst of this joy to the world season an awful lot of sorrow and darkness. And I don't know if that's where you're at tonight, but maybe you know someone who is. There's a lot of gloom and shades of night that seem to be hanging about the souls of people these days. Merry Christmas doesn't seem quite so merry this year. Um, I see and talk to people who are experiencing personal and family struggles, futility, that it seems like whatever they're trying to do just does not happen. There is, of course, the ongoing pressure that we're all facing, no doubt, with the rise of inflation and the rising cost of things. There are people that I know who are looking ahead to this Christmas as the first Christmas that they'll be without someone that they love and cherish. And it seems like, as the saying goes, everybody's fighting something. And maybe this year that I've experienced, maybe I've just experienced more people that are just open and honest enough to say to me, listen, I am really struggling this time of year. We look at our own personal struggles and then we lift our eyes to the world around us and and how how much more that could be compounded, right? You still hear stories of of shootings and you hear stories of drug abuse and overdose and you hear stories of homelessness and you hear stories of war and Ukraine rages on. You hear about the Hamas and what they did in Israel and then you hear about the ongoing conflict in Gaza. And there is this sense of of sorrow. And maybe it feels that much weightier because this is supposed to be that time of year when the world weary world rejoices, right? 
the coming of Jesus was a time of great sadness. And as this passage shows us, no sooner had the sound of the worshiping wise men faded away to the east, you begin to hear the sound of crying, wailing for lost children. Children murdered by a maniacal and no doubt satanically inspired king. But what does this story from the early life of Jesus have to teach us at this season or any other season? What is it that, can, that it can teach us about the shadow of tragedy and despair and difficulty and loss? What does a Christian story speak into those moments? And so I want to focus today on tears. It may seem a strange, a strange uh, topic when we're in that joy to the world season, but I want to think about the topic of tears. And I have four very simple points that I want us to consider this evening. The first is this, that tears fall in a fallen world. Tears fall in a fallen world. Two notes strike us as we read of the tears in Ramah. Sorrow for loss and sorrow against the injustice of that moment. Of course, we too cry for loss. Though our circumstances are not the same as these, we too cry for loss. We experience loss in the actual loss of persons that we love. We also experience loss in the sense that sometimes we have to have funerals for plans and ideas that we thought were going to come to pass and never did. As a parent of children with special needs, that will need my care for as long as I live, and then I'll have to die in faith and hope that they'll be cared for after me. As a parent of special needs children, I remember what another parent, another pastor told me about the journey as a Christian who parents special needs. And he says, you're going to have to have a lot of little funerals. There's a lot of things you're going to have to die to. There's a lot of things you're going to have, the expectations or goals or plans or hopes that you might have had for your children that you're going to have to just say, these are not going to happen. We have those kind of losses, losses in the sense of hopes that never come to be, but we also experience loss itself. Both of Our own physical strength as time goes on. We've experienced the loss of resources and we experience the loss of loved ones and will in time experience the loss of our own lives unless our Lord returns first. That's part of a fallen world. Loss came as a result of sin. And you think about that loss, ultimately that loss, that death that came into the world, Had there been no sin, there would be no death. Had there been no sin, there would be no loss. But we know sin, by one man, sin entered into the world. And death by sin. So then death death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans 5 and 12. Had man never sinned, he would have continued to eat of the tree of life and he would have lived forever. God expelled sinful man from the garden because He did not want him 
to eat and live on in his sinfulness forever. There's a sense in which even that is an act of grace. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. The Lord God said, Behold, man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree and eat and live for life, and uh, 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 tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. The Bible tells us then that he placed the cherubim there at the, at the entrance of the garden. Man couldn't sneak back in and eat of that tree of life and live forever in that state of sinfulness. Of course, we keep reading the story, and the very first death came as a result of murder. As Cain killed his brother Abel. And how the enemy of our souls must have rejoiced, because as we thought about this morning, he was a murderer from the beginning. But now, as we look at the world around us, the Bible very clearly tells us, Paul tells us in Romans, we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain. The creation right now, it groans under the weight of the curse. So, the world groans and we cry as we experience the loss that we experience in this world. But there's also the lamentation of Ramah where they are weeping because of the injustice of it all. It's one thing to lose someone, but to lose their children under these conditions because there is a king that wants to hold on to his power. And so what he does is, is takes the life of all of the male children two years of age and under. It is horribly, wickedly unjust. What did they ever do to deserve that? There was mourning for a lack of justice. And I think that though it's sometimes misguided, sometimes what we think of as justice is not truly justice, there is within every one of our hearts this hope and longing for justice. And when we see that things are not the way they should be, it's a cause of sadness and sorrow. Some of you might remember, sadly and tragically, several years back, the Sandy Hook shooting and all of the young lives that were taken. And almost immediately after that, people were chiming in with their thoughts on gun control and mental health and many other things. And there's a sense in which it's right, not because everyone had the right ideas about how to fix things, but because the impulse was, we know something's wrong, how can it be fixed? We realize the injustice of this world. And our hearts groan within us and tears fall because of that injustice. There are some people who wonder whether we should really be longing for justice at all. Shouldn't we just sort of passively float through life? Perhaps we should have some kind of a, a Buddhist ideal. Life is suffering just... Eliminate all desires, including the desire for justice. 
But the desire for justice is actually a very Christian thing. In fact, it's the testimony of Scriptures throughout that there is a longing for justice, including against the very enemies of God. You hear the psalmist cry out, How long, O Lord? This is the same cry of the saints under the altar in the book of Revelation. For someone that might have a slightly different view on eschatology, I sure have mentioned Revelation a lot. Um, <laughs> but you know, the cry of the, of the saints under the altar, right? How long, O Lord? And there is something that is right about justice. Vengeance is wrong, not wrong altogether. It's just wrong for us to take. It's not that we don't believe in vengeance. It's just that we believe it's not ours to take. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. But we're all longing for a kind... We're longing to see justice done. And there are situations in this world that we look at and we know that they're not right. And the fact that they're not right causes sorrow. But we also recognize, on the other hand, that we in ourselves don't have the strength or the wisdom to make it right. So there's this sorrow that is within us because of the injustice of it all. I mean, and, and, and just name the scenario, name the issue in the world today. Ukraine, Gaza, whatever the case may be. Who has the wisdom and power to fix that? None of us. We cry for the injustice of this world. So, tears fall in a fallen world. But second, I, I want us to understand as we think about tears, that tears are right in a world gone wrong. Tears are right in a world gone wrong. It's not just that they happen, it's that they are right. A healthy Christian worldview is not one which refuses to see the sunshine. It's not one that refuses to see beauty. We don't close our eyes to beauty because of the presence of ugliness. We don't close our eyes to glory because of the, because of the, of the presence of that which is inglorious. If we were to do so, that's almost a, an imbalance of, of nearly blasphemous proportions. But a healthy Christian worldview, on the other hand, is not one that closes its eyes to the reality of darkness and shadows. We don't simply pretend like they don't exist. We should not be trying to live our lives as modern-day Pollyannas or whatever the case may be. Everything's fine. Everything's good. I think that if we're honest, we remember that, that poem, at least one that I learned, and there's the line, God's in His heaven, all's right with the world. And if we're honest, we're like, yeah, God may be in His heaven, but everything is not right with the world. But tears are right in a world gone wrong. Within the context of this world gone wrong, it is right for tears to fall. It is right to be sorrowful. It is right to be sorrowful in Ramah. It is right to be sorrowful in Sudbury and in Toronto. It is right. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 4 tells us that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. That there is a time to mourn and a time to dance. Except maybe not in the Baptist church. but a time to weep and a time to laugh. 
A time to mourn and a time to dance. New Testament gives similar testimony when it says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There is, I mentioned this this morning, that there is sort of a rise of Stoicism. The old... Uh, philosophy, and, and, and in some ways there is some commendable things about Stoicism. Uh, you don't just dissolve into nothing and, and, don't, and refuse to do anything, and Stoicism kind of fights back against that and says, yes, life is dark, but just keep going. But the problem with Stoicism is it just sort of grits its teeth and keeps going, and the Christian worldview is a little bit bigger than that. It's not just bite down in your mouth guard and keep swinging. There is a time to weep. It's not commendable to pretend as though everything is right when it's wrong. And when I was teaching in Barrie, the school there, there was a, a young man who at the time, he, he was only, I think, in, in eighth grade. But... Uh, he had an exaggerated sense of his own strength and size. And he had started doing some push-ups and weightlifting and stuff. And this kid, who's he's in eighth grade, he starts walking down the hallways like this. He would approach a doorway and he would actually turn sideways and walk through the door like, like this. And it was just so silly to see this guy. But I guess part of this persona of being this great big monstrous Oh, governor of California type character, was that he he seemed to think that he, it was you know he he should never show pain or or struggle or sorrow. And I remember one time that he we were playing uh playing outside um, the guys were playing a, a ball hockey outside, and he took a slap shot in a place that should cause pain, and he walks around didn't hurt didn't hurt. David, that's not commendable. It really isn't. When things hurt, it's okay that they hurt. That's the way the world works. And all that to say that tears are right in a world gone wrong. Sometimes sorrow and crying is the appropriate response, that we do weep. Not only with those who weep, but we weep as the ones who weep. We are afflicted with many sorrows and struggles. And there is a time to weep, just as there is a time to laugh. It's part of our humanness. In the Jungle Book, the book, not the movie or the cartoon, in the Jungle Book, the book by Rudyard Kipling, as Mowgli realizes that his place is no longer in the jungle, and he's coming to an awareness that he's not really one of the other animals. This place is no longer in the jungle. This is the, what we read. It says, pardon me a second. <clears throat> it says, then something began to hurt Mowgli inside of him as he had never been hurt in his life before. And he caught his breath and sobbed. And the tears ran down his face. And he says, what is it? What is it? He says, I do not wish to leave the jungle. I do not know what this is. Am I dying, Bagheera? And Bagheera, of course, says to him, No, little brother, that is only tears such as men 
use. Now I know that thou art a man, and a man's cub no longer. The jungle is shut indeed to these henceforth. Let them fall, Mowgli. They are only tears. It's part of our humanity. Let them fall. Let the tears fall. It's right. There's a time to weep. Remember that even Jesus, the greatest of men, wept. A verse that some of you have memorized. Hopefully not the only verse you have memorized. John 11.35, Jesus wept. Even Jesus wept. So tears are right in a world gone wrong. Tears fall in a fallen world. Tears are right in a world gone wrong. Third, and very important, brothers and sisters, heaven is not indifferent to our tears. Heaven is not indifferent to our tears. I remember witnessing to a man, and he, of course, did not believe in the Lord, and he leaned back on that very emotional argument, the problem of evil and suffering. Is your God good? Is your God powerful and why? He said it in much more colorful terms. He said, if there were such a God, I sure as wouldn't want to believe in that. And that's the way a lot of people respond. That God and suffering can't coexist. If God is good, why does suffering exist? Maybe He is not good. Or maybe He's just powerless to stop it. I think it's not so much a logical argument as it is an emotional argument. And I think for many people at the heart of it is essentially how can God, the question is, how can God remain indifferent to our need? How can He remain aloof and uncaring, untouched by our sorrows, untouched by our difficulties? But the Christian worldview and the Bible does not have that. The Bible says that God is not indifferent to our need and to our suffering. And it's precisely the truth of Christmas that reminds us that God is not aloof and untouched by our suffering. Because the truth of Christmas is that God has sent His Son to live and to die for us. He sent His Son to live with us and die for us. God has come to earth to deal with the problem at the heart of all evil and suffering, and He's come to deal with it firsthand. In some of you may know the author Dorothy Sayers. She wrote a number of mystery novels as well as other things. And some people, I think wrongly, but some people postulate that she actually wrote herself into the novels to save the main character that had been the main character of her novels from loneliness. I think that's overthinking it a bit, but the, the new character that she did write into the novel has a lot of similarities with her. 
but but I think that theory about her literature is overblown. However, in the big story that God wrote, God wrote himself into our story. That story that begins in eternity past and will end in the new heavens and the new earth, God wrote himself into that story to deal with the root issue of our suffering and, uh, and the problem of evil. He is not aloof and indifferent. Is God untouched by our suffering? Is God untouched by our sorrows? No, because the cradle is ultimately meaningless apart from the cross. Jesus came to die. Our hearts will often resonate at a very profound level when we hear the actions of people who lay down their lives to help others. And uh, a young man, or well, he, I met him when I when I met him. He was young, but uh, he's he went to be he went to the mission field with another friend of mine, and uh, they were there in the Dominican Republic. And they were having an outing at the beach. And so a bunch of people went swimming. And while they were swimming there at the o- on the ocean, um, a, a tide came in and began to pull a couple of these teens out. And so this young man, Joshua, went in to save them. And he saved them, but he ended up giving his own life to do so. And so those young people look back at what he did with fondness and and with love because he laid down his life to save them from certain death and destruction. Well, so has our God in the person of Jesus Christ. He has entered into our story and he's written the story in such a way not that he simply avoids the shadows and the suffering and the darkness and the evil, but that he confronts it head on and lays down his life for us. That central truth of the Christian story, which is substitution. Jesus was not content to just apply band-aid solutions to surface and you know some surface protocol adjustments. He came to deal with the deepest problem. So we talked about as by, as by one man sin entered into this world and with that sin all evil and suffering and tears came. By one man sin entered into the world, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Yet the second and last Adam, Jesus, comes to face and to conquer that sin. We all are sinful by nature and by choice. Whenever we question the problem of evil, we find it within ourselves, if we're honest. How can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God, especially if God is holy and the standard that he requires is righteousness? It's unattainable in our strength. The standard is so unattainable that only God can meet his own standard. And he did. He came to live and to die for us. He came to provide for us righteousness that we could not ourselves earn or gain. 
At the cross, God, the Son, was profoundly touched by the mess of this world. He knew pain and suffering, and He knew divine justice on our behalf. He knew hell for all who would place their trust in Him. And for us, as we look back on that, we say that He paid or you will pay if you don't trust in Him. And so, heaven is not indifferent to our tears. But has dealt with it at the most profound and deep level. But finally, tears are a temporary necessity. They're a temporary necessity. There is a day when all will be made new. The payment has been made. Redemption and restoration are certain. Jesus has died and He has risen. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Evil and suffering will be one no more. For all who have trusted, there will be a glorious day in which these precious words of Revelation 21 will be brought to pass. Where John says, and here I am with Revelation again, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And notice what it says. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. Such a beautiful, profound, hope-filled statement That God will be with us. He will be our God. He will wipe away every tear. And all of that darkness and sorrow and shadow will be gone forever. So brothers and sisters, tears fall in a fallen world. Tears are right in a world gone wrong. Heaven is not indifferent to our tears, but tears are a temporary necessity. There's a day coming when they will be no more. Every tear will be wiped away. Now that is for those who trust. For those who do not trust, there will be judgment. There will be that longing for perfect justice that is met. Justice will come. Perfect justice. Unclouded by ignorance unmotivated, unmoved by bribery, untainted by any spot of sin, perfect justice will come. In fact, that same chapter, Revelation chapter 20, says, or the previous chapter rather, Revelation chapter 20 says, that I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. 
and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. In that day, no one will be able to give excuses. In that day, no one will give a reason. There will simply be the weight of justice before a holy God who knows it all. And so again, I appeal to you that if you have not trusted in Christ, place your faith in Him. He will save you. The hope that we have of tears being a temporary necessity, that hope is only for believers. Because for those who will not believe, there is a place of torment where there is eternal weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So, that is an eternal reality for those who don't trust Jesus. But for those who have sought refuge in Christ, there is this hope that we have tears are a temporary necessity. One day they will all be wiped away. They'll be wiped away as the one who sits on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. There is a day coming when all things will fully and finally be made new. And again, Christians have debated and discussed the timing and circumstances of how it all comes to be. But at the end of time, at the final chapter of it all, that one chapter that is the unending chapter, the perfect chapter, the new heavens and new earth come. And there is eternal glory. This world, the heavens, will be utterly transformed. Perfect. Read Second Peter about that hope that is coming for us. God once judged the earth by water. He will one day completely judge and renovate it by fire. But what emerges from that will be beauty and glorious and eternal. In his allegory, Edge of Eternity, Randy Alcorn, and it is allegorical, he writes of the scene, as you, as you will, of this allegory at the end of time. And he says, I stood back on Thoros again and, and saw a dying cosmos hold out its weak right arm, longing for a transfusion, a cure for its cancerous chasm. I saw the woodsman, which is a, a type in his story of Christ, holding what appeared to be a tiny lump of coal, the same size as the blue-green marble he'd held before, the woodsman squeezed his hand and the world around me darkened. I fell to my knees, grasped my throat with my hands, felt the squeeze against my right temple, and just as I felt I would scream from unbearable pressure, the crushed world emerged from his grip a diamond, and I, gra- and I gasped air in relief. All around I saw soldiers drop their weapons. The crippled. The crippled toss their crutches and run.
the blind open their eyes and see and point and dance, throwing their arms around each other and around me. I saw children sit in the king's lap and watched him wipe away their tears while his own fell upon them. I saw a new world. Once more, life-filled blue-green, the old black coal delivered from its curse and pain and shame, wondrously remade. He writes, it looks so easy for the woodsman to do all this. But then I saw his scars and remembered it was not. That day's coming. And we long for it. It brings a tear to our eye, a tear of hope, of joy, of anticipation in the midst of the sorrow. And, and even as we read words like that, we get out a thousand disabilities to it. The mute, like my little boy Joel, unable to speak a word, his tongue loosened, his mind unbeclouded. My friend Rob, who's been confined to a wheelchair since he's 17 years of age and recently had to have a leg amputated, running laps around heavenly tracks in glory. I think of people whose minds have been stolen by the ravages of age and dementia, now being able to see and know so clearly. And I look and I long for that day. That day's coming, brothers and sisters. It's coming because of Jesus and what He's accomplished there's a certainty to it. The new heavens and the new earth will come. He will make all things new. And what a day that will be. And we should set our hope, as I mentioned this morning, set our hope upon that which is to come. And live with strength in the present. So this Christmas we may sorrow. We may labor under the weight of sorrow. But if we are His, just like sorrowing the loss of a loved one who is in Christ, we sorrow but not as others who have no hope. We sorrow with hope. Because Jesus' hands are scarred, He has accomplished all. The victory is won. That day is coming. There's a day coming when the voice of weeping will not be heard in Ramah or Sudbury or Toronto or anywhere else. Because those hands are scarred, all things will be made new. And so, even as we sang earlier, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we cry from our hearts, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.